0: We live in the world, which is headed and run by the prince of the power of the air. But we live by the Spirit, discerning the times. For he who is spiritual discerns all things. Sharpen your discernment. Build your faith. Listen to the Word and world team. Minister the Word of God through conversational theology, piercing the darkness of this present evil age.
1: well, welcome back. We're going to be starting our second session on a review of Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And we have Bob Brandon and Hampton Keithley here to discuss it.
2: Good morning, uh, last Hampton. Th- <laughs>
1: good morning. Last, last time we covered about the first half of the first chapter And so we want to finish that today. But in a review, I could say that we wanted to understand how we got to the point where someone could say, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. And how could we get to the point where the culture was okay with somebody saying like something like that, or at least understanding what they meant, not necessarily agreeing with it. And we're trying to come up with tools for cultural analysis. That's right. So we know how to think about some of these things that are happening around us.
2: That's right. And And we'll we'll keep mentioning those Hampton as as we go along, you know, the tools of analysis. And then maybe as we wrap up at the end of the book, we'll we'll really clarify specifically what those are and show how to use them. Can I ask you first, didn't you have a meeting yesterday, Hampton, with a, a political figure? I did. It wasn't that fun.
1: It was. It was. And he suggested that we do a writings or podcasting about how to think biblically about politics. So.
2: <laughs> well, that's, that's what I wanted to bring up. How, how interesting to go. Well, that's exactly what we're doing. Oh, fun. So, OK, here's one of the things I wanted to get to in, in Truman. So he mentions what's technically called uh, mimesis and poiesis mimesis and poiesis. Here's why those two terms are important. I'm just gonna read from him a couple sentences. Put simply, these two terms refer to two different ways of thinking about the world. So that these would be tools of analysis, okay? These two things. A mimetic view regards the world as having a given order and a given meaning and thus sees human beings as required to discover that meaning and conform themselves to it. Poiesis, by way of contrast, sees the world as so much raw material out of which meaning and purpose can be created by the individual. So in a mimetic worldview, you're looking at the world and figuring out how you fit into that. In a poetic worldview, you're looking at the world and going, how do I change that to fit what I want? Okay. Right. Two, two, two very different things. So here's, here's a little anecdote. I don't think you've met my daughter, the wonderful creature, Sophia I have no named, <laughs> named appropriately right in my mind. I just wanted her to be wise and, uh, so when she was, you know, the youngest of ages, two or three years old, we lived in Minturn, and our little condo was right over the Eagle River, the beginnings of the Eagle River. And you looked almost down into the Eagle River. And then we were on the second floor and then straight across to this vertical mountain. It was so cool. And so I would take uh, often take Sophia out to our deck there and I would say, Sophia, who created all this? And she would say, God did. And I would say, and who created you? And she would say, God did. And I would say, why did he create you? And she would say, to rule over this creation. That's my medic. Okay. Okay, but poetic would be if I stood there and said, "Sophia, do you see this creation?" And she would say, "Yes." And I would say, "You know, what do you want to do with it? Bend it and shape it and make it, you know, according to my image." That—that's poetic. Okay. Okay. So that's an interesting way to look at a culture. So um, our culture, American culture, has been uh, primarily mimetic up until now. Right, that that's the statement, right? That you so aptly produced to, to begin this podcast this morning. Uh, how I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. That's poetic. That's how do I bend reality to fit what I feel inside, right? So right. that's a person who wants a, a transgender operation and so to change the world to fit what they feel. So I just thought it was important to go back and and look at those two terms. And then when I think, whenever I hear conform, as you know, there are certain passages in the scripture that just, you, you don't want to minimize anything due to Jesus's words, right? Not the smallest jot or tittle will fade. It's, it's inspired right. down to its smallest element. So I'm not minimizing other scripture. And yet, On the other hand, there are certain passages that are just so tremendously powerful. They're just structures that hold up the rest of the scripture. So Romans 12, one and two, you can't hardly think of these um, concepts we're talking about without these scriptures in your mind. Therefore, I exhort you brothers and sisters by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, holy, and pleasing to god which is your reasonable service do not be conformed to this present world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve what is the will of god and what is good and well-pleasing and perfect you see at the end there hampton what so that you may like discern the will of God, right? That's my medic. Like, how do I fit into the will of God? It's the opposite of poetic. It's how do I bend God's will to my desires? Right? That's, that would be poetic. So anyway, I just wanted to mention those as we move forward. So to that tool of analysis, um, do we live in a poetic or a mimetic culture and right now i'd say it's blended you you still have plenty of yeah we have both kinds right
1: a part of i think that's chapter two where he's going to talk about that merger right so that was page 39 i think you said for that that's right so in a couple pages later 44 to 46 area he starts talking about the psychological man and expressive individualism i think that's the caption Yep. <clears throat> he says culture directs individuals outward. And I, I think by culture, culture by its very definition is bigger than the individual. So what's good is good for the community is more important than what is good for self. Correct?
2: Are you saying that's what Reef is saying? I think that's yes. what Reef is saying. Yeah.
1: But I think that's probably a true statement, wouldn't you? That what's good for the culture is more important than what's good for self. I mean, I'm, I'm not as, as in not being selfish.
2: Yeah, that's a hard one for me. I, I see both sides of, of that coin uh, when you think about, for instance, uh, Moses establishing a nation. Right. Right. Here's here's the two tablets, the commandments, and he's essentially structuring their society. That's what you see. He's he's doing what's best for the society, structuring a people of God.
1: I'm 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 assuming a good culture.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's
1: right. That's right. Um, And I'm assuming a biblical culture. And as he talks about, we'll talk about in chapter two, a um, transcendent moral value. Okay. that's right that's right so so i think in that sense culture is more important than self um but we're now dominated by the psychological man and the therapeutic man that's what he's saying in his in his this air this section of the book and so it comes an inward focus and it's all about authenticity (laughs) correct okay okay correct so He gave an example of his grandfather, which was helpful for me. If you asked his grandfather, was he happy in his – did he like his job? He was like, sure, uh, pays the bills.
2: Yeah, wouldn't wouldn't have thought of it that way. It would be a strange question to him. Right. And
1: so we, though, now it's all about – that's my identity. I'm a computer programmer. I'm a medical technician. I'm a whatever – Right. so it's it's more of an uh, and so the focus went from fitting into the community like you were talking about the mimesis thing yep and and moved to authenticity and i think it's also interesting you know that became a really big word in in christian circles authenticity sure you know, and, And so now i guess the the thing that changed that what he's tracing in the in this part of the chapter is that community is now seen as repressive and oppressive and in need of revolutionary change and primarily in the area of sexual codes that seems to be the focus i think that's part of the main focus of the whole book the, the change in It is,
2: and you and imagine you know that statement. I'm a, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. That that's gender. That that's sexuality. That that that's the issue. And so one of the things uh, that you gain as a reader of Truman, and he he re, it really bears fruit. You know, a a patient reading of Truman. Bears fruit. He really sharpens your insight in, into a lot of the issues. And again, what we're striving for is not just a knee-jerk reaction. You know, when I when I hear this statement, "Hey, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body," I'm just like, <laughs> I I apologize for my personality. You know, I've it the last. Uh, the last part of me to be saved i think is going to be my personality but i just tend so quick so quickly towards sarcasm you know i i tend to you know i'm a tranny too i'm i'm a trans financial i'm i'm really a rich guy but i was born into a poor guy's body you know can you can you go fund me <laughs> that, that's how i tend to respond but the the point is it's such a hard to grasp statement and what Truman provides is the analysis into uh, how did we get to that point right what happened in the history of our culture and even before that what what things influenced us from outside that that we got to the point where someone could seriously make that statement and his he uses his grandfather in that illustration too he said you know, if you if you'd have told my grandfather that if you'd have walked up to him and said, hey, I'm a woman in a man's, he just wouldn't know how to respond. And he right. wouldn't wouldn't know how to respond either to that question. You know, do you like your job? It would be that's not a thing I like or that's a That's a thing I do. You know, that that's life. Job is life. That's how I create for my family. That's how I lead my you know what I mean? It, right. like liking would have nothing to do with it. And hopefully you take joy in the fulfillment of your responsibilities before the Lord, right? That's probably how that guy would answer. You know, there, there's a deep joy in obedience and fulfillment, but liking it, you know, that wouldn't even have been on the radar.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, page 51, he says, "Suppressive nature of bourgeois." Is that how you pronounce that word?
2: Boy. There
1: we go. The oppressive nature of bourgeois society is built on repressive sexual codes that maintain the patriarchal nuclear family as the norm. And then he says, shattering sexual codes is therefore one of the principal emancipatory tasks of the political revolutionary."
2: Yeah, and that's we gotta slow down there and, and point that out because I, I think it's critical. I, I think Truman's really onto something. Why do we see in our culture uh, the form that the rebellion is taking? And, and you you know, he'll abbreviate in the book, you know, the L G B T Q, and then he just puts a plus. Right. And it, and it, it's a good. He's not being disrespectful. You know, it's one of the things I appreciate about <laughs> Truman, is you can tell he's writing from a Christian worldview. But he's he he's respectful. Uh, he's not making fun of the person who says, you know, I'm a woman trapped in a man's. But he's trying to analyze, and he's he does a good job of that. He he does a good job of maintaining. Um, integrity and dignity and he'll talk about the term dignity right in future Mm -hmm. chapters but he really does a good job of that so the question is why is the rebellion in our culture focused on sexuality and and that's interesting so where fundamentally does sexuality come from
1: From God, it was his from
2: from God, very early on in the scriptures. Right. And as we go through our other segment on politics in America, our our other podcast, uh, we trace the Noahic covenant. Right. We trace the very beginning of these things. God made male and female as his image right and then very soon he ordains marriage right Moses says for this reason you know a man will leave his family and be become one flesh with his wife and so so the rebellion around sexuality is ultimately the ultimate rebellion against God that's why you're seeing that in our culture so let me read another passage. We were in Romans 12, and, and we've read this a number of times. I will never get tired of reading this, Hampton. It's so critical. This is one of those passages that strikes at the very heart of the matter, and you know where I'm going. This is Romans chapter 1. Paul says in Romans 1:18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness because what can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them for since the creation of the world his invisible attributes his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen because they're understood through what has been made. So people are without excuse for although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts and their senseless hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for an image resembling mortal human beings or birds or four footed animals or reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the desires of their hearts to impurity, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator who's blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged the natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. And likewise, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed in their passions for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, now, how that is what Truman is talking about. That is exactly what's going on in our culture, right? The, the sexual revolution is really rebellion against God. It, it couldn't be more clear. Right, right.
1: Yeah, when I read that, I had the question, why is one of the principal emancipatory tasks of the political revolutionary was to get rid of the sexual codes? Why is that? Um, right. One of the things I had thought was, you know, that's the most powerful, I think he says it, the most powerful inward desire of people is sexual desire. We were talking the other day about uh, certain swimmers that once they got a boyfriend, they were, (laughs) they were (laughs) no longer,
2: it's hard to get them in the pool working out. Right.
1: right. And so that kind of takes over. And I, uh, I remember reading uh, Aldous Huxley, who wrote The Brave New World.
2: Sure.
1: He wrote a book called Ends and Means, um, or in a book called Ends and Means, he made the comment, uh, for myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaningless, meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system. And liberation from a certain system of morality. Basically, they wanted to justify themselves, and it says in their political and erotic revolt. Sure. You know, he's just being honest. We yep. we 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 start, started this whole nihilistic worldview so we could have sex with whoever we wanted.
2: Yeah. Yes, you know, and yes, and I think that's you know what. Tangential to tools of analysis is so when you read the the famous people in history, for instance, we're going to get to Freud, Marx, Nietzsche, Rousseau. If you can understand the issues that they're facing, it makes their words a lot more clear. Like, for instance, it's so easy to have a knee jerk reaction to Nietzsche right? Like, you know, him saying God is dead. That's not necessarily he, Nietzsche, the atheist, just rebelling. He actually, when you read him and understand what he was dealing with, he, you can see what he's saying. He, his point in saying that was, well, what are you guys going to replace him with? <laughs> now, now that you've cut yourself off from the anchor, are you going to be God? Are you omniscient can you judge the world you know it's pretty interesting he, he so was really
1: wrestling with the whole idea he's
2: wrestling with that he he was not so much shaking his fist at god he he was more you guys need to see what you're doing you know the implications oh, you know it's it is and we'll get to him further in the book but it, many of those guys are like that once you can see what they're really dealing with uh they're, they're valuable they're they're there's reasons their names have endured down through, you know, the decades and centuries. They, they had important things to say. It, here, here's another one, Hampton. Let me, let me uh, toss this out there before we move forward. The first time you heard, I, I think it was in the context of a college campus, but I, I remember reading something to the effect that these students, whether it was at Dartmouth or some Ivy League school, you know, didn't feel safe. And they needed a safe place. And I thought, well, this has got to be about a mass murder or something. You know, there's violence on the campus. And it, that wasn't the context. The, Psychological the, violence. It was, psycho- you know, a conservative had come to speak, you know, and they didn't feel safe. What was your reaction the first time you heard that, that they didn't feel safe? I mean, did that compute
1: no, to, I, it didn't compute. I was like, what are they talking about? You
2: it, know, that did, was my response. I, I think exactly. it's interesting. Like,
1: you just went, you just went there, but, and I think I didn't send this to you, but on page 54, I have a, something I wrote out here. I must not tailor my psychological needs to the nature of society for that would create anxiety and make me inauthentic. Right. Refusing to bake me a cake is not, consistent with the therapeutic ideal in fact it is the opposite and causes me psychological harm correct so that's what you're talking about with the safe place
2: yes it's the opposite
1: of what the bible teaches i mean we're supposed to resist the (laughs) desires of the flesh and walk by the spirit you're not now we're being taught we need to give into the desires of the flesh so that we can be real.
2: exactly right exactly so and and one step below that is how we began our our time on this podcast. That's poetic. See, they're trying to shape the world into their desires so they don't feel safe if the world's resisting that. I see. So, so that, that's the essence. So when they you know, that, that term just didn't even make sense to me. I, I need a safe place. I'm like, what, you know, and then, and then you just run to in your mind, well, what a baby, you know, grow up, man, the world's tough, you know, figure it out and get going. But they, that's not so much what they're talking about. They're, they're, they're talking about you're resisting my efforts to authentically express my sexuality, right? That, that's kind of what they're saying
0: right so
2: another sorry, idea I interjected that objected there
1: but that's fine no that's good um another thing that caught my my attention was this whole idea of our identity is tied up in our relationships with others and even like this Descartes when he says I think therefore I am that's not really legitimate yeah. because I think Truman's pointing this out I is grammar yeah and is as you know which functions in community you know i as opposed to you and others and so humans need to belong to a group and you know when a teenager rebels against mom and dad and starts dressing different wearing his hair different whatever turns out he's actually dressing like everybody else in his group he's he's just changing communities changing peers okay (laughs) And so yeah. our identity is I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a son. That's how God designed us. And so so he has a whole section where he talks about community and how that's where we get our identity. You have any thoughts on that?
2: Well, I, I just have personal thoughts on that because I, I always, those subjects always cause me to reflect deeply. As you know me, a little bit, but I have one of those personalities that really doesn't fit in. And that might sound sort of strange to you. You probably don't see me that way. But the the issue for me is that's never been a problem for me. I don't really desire to fit in greatly. You know, have you, have you ever read the prophets from the perspective of like the prophet himself? Did you ever think, what would it be like? Not just what is Jeremiah saying, but what would it be like to be him? So so those discussions are always interesting to me. And yet we tend to speak in in, um, ultimate kind of terms when I say I don't really fit in. I fit in to some extent. This is not like I'm a complete oddball. Right. Funny, I'm just. Yeah. More, <laughs> I mean, you might be <laughs> laughing on. Oh, when do I tell him he really is?
1: <laughs> well, so we, I was in a summer camp between my sophomore and junior year at Texas A&M Air Force at uh, Bergstrom Air Force Base, and 105 people were in this camp, and they had a survey thing, whatever. They asked, question: Do you identify yourself as a circle, a square, a whatever? <laughs> 104 people were a circle and I was the one and only square. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So yeah, I thought, well, I guess I don't fit in either.
2: Right. And, and yet biblically, if your identity is anchored in the Lord, then those aren't really big issues, but it, but if you weren't anchored to the Lord, I could see identity just being a gigantic uh, issue for almost everyone that that's not well, I, anchored in Yeah anymore. and I
1: think that that's the root of the cake baking Colorado yeah masterpiece cake shop or whatever it's called you know they it's not that they want to be able to go buy a cake for their wedding somewhere they want everyone everywhere because it's their identity and if everybody doesn't approve it. then they don't feel
2: safe they they don't right. feel like they've achieved the cultural revolution yet if you cannot be safe in your made up identity then then they haven't achieved their task yet how about this when um when sophia's uh, graduating from college now but she, when she was in grade school you know now and then you know i'd volunteer to be the guy that you sort of need a monitor when they're out there on the playground and stuff. Now and then you would hear hear some kid, you know, be lonely off to the side, you know, and he would say, you know, they, they treat me like I don't exist. And that wasn't thought out. That was their gut instinct, you know, was if you are not accepted by the your immediate culture, your peer group and so on you might as well not even exist. That's how strong that is for, for those people. And I just felt so sorry whenever I heard that. Right. Uh, but but you'll hear that phrase. They treat me like I don't exist. So you'll also hear the, the phrase in our culture, you know, get a life. <laughs> and whenever <laughs> I'm like, don't you have one? I mean, you're living, you're breathing. What do you mean? Get a life, right? And they, they yeah. mean... And, and mostly, I think what they mean by that is leading an exciting life, I think, is is what's behind that. Right. Excitement. Like you'll hear people up in in the valley. You know, you've moved back to Texas recently, but up here in the Vale Valley or you were in the Roaring Fork Valley and so on outside Aspen. Uh, you know, you'll hear people say I'm living the dream. i always i sort of chuckle you know well how's it how's that going for you
1: yeah when people i would (laughs) tell people what all i was doing up there they would say they would use that phrase
2: you sound like you're living the dream (laughs) yeah and you were yeah because you'd be fishing in the flying frying pan river and pulling out some trout and stuff or you'd be golfing it and that is there is a great pleasantness to that but it, I wouldn't say it's it's the ultimate fulfillment of your existence. No, you know? no,
1: <laughs> that's true. You have any anything else you want to bring up on chapter one?
2: I've got uh, tons. Let me find some here. How about? because he's going to use this term a lot. I think we might have mentioned it, but I don't think we really dug in, although it it pertains to a lot of our conversation we've had already. And you're a good German speaker. You were stationed in Germany for some years. So am I pronouncing this word correctly? Sitlikite?
1: Yes, that is correct. <laughs>
2: okay. So Truman... Uh, puts a lot of emphasis on that word what's your understanding of of that term I can I can just read it here
1: well yeah um, I thought I knew what it meant when I read it but I guess my German wasn't very good because he says it's one's moral obligation to the community yeah and so I had not understood that but but yeah that's a He talks about it's uh, Zolan versus Zine. You know, Zolan is to should or ought and Zine is to be. Right. He'll use those kind of terms. Yeah,
2: indicative or imperative, really. right? Right. So but here, let me let me just read this is he's quoting Taylor, who uses this. Taylor doesn't sound like a very German name, but <laughs> here we go. Sitlikite uh, refers to the moral obligations I have to an ongoing community of which I am part. These obligations are based on established norms and uses, and that's why the etymological root in sitten. Is important for Hegel's use. This really comes from Hegel, and and the reason Hegel, the German philosopher, is important is because, well, who's his most famous student, Karl Marx, right? So when you're talking about Sitlikite, you're you're really getting at uh, the foundation of Karl Marx, whom we're going to get to later in this book, is one of the, what a. Fascinating person that is. Well, but, you've been um, reading Marx's book. Yeah. Or you to, about a year and a half a ago, ago. About it. Yeah. About a year, year and a half ago, I started seeing, you know, looking out remember, over the political landscape of the U.S. and going, "Man, I need to, I need to really learn who this guy was," because that's the direction we're going. We're we're headed towards a communistic kind of government, one world government sort of thing. I believe. And uh, we're doing away with capitalism and, and the U.S. democracy. Um, we're, we're headed towards that. So I'm like, who is this guy? And in my mind, you know, I'm holding up uh, Jesus in one hand and Karl Marx in the other and going, who would I rather <laughs> you know, right. fo- follow? Well, Boy, you know, <laughs> it's,
1: it's interesting. Uh, just yesterday, I heard uh, George W. Bush was interviewed or something and he made a comment about people that were i can't remember he, he was commenting on conservatives being isolationist protectionist i don't remember the words he used but yeah um you know isolationist the people who wanted to get out of the war that we've been fighting for 20 years are isolationist i mean yeah. we're just tired of people dying over there for a lost cause right and that's not isolationism but the thing that he was saying it was globalism is what he was
2: oh he's driving for that
1: yeah and and you know his i think was his father was the thousand points of light right something like that and so there is a globalist um, movement Movement. heavy
2: heavy movement let let me just toss this in there and we'll get back to sit in a second um almost Boy, I'd say upwards of 75% Hampton of the people in our national government, whether they're um, congressmen or senators, have been through what's called the Center on Foreign Relations. And that is nothing other than a think tank for globalism. That was started by John Rockefeller back in the earliest days of the 19th 20th century and that he's achieved his goals with that boy you come out of there as a globalist 75 mm-hmm. percent of them have been through that program
1: Wow
2: we'll we'll get to that at a later point but let me let me finish the Sitlikite. the reason it's important is because it's from Hegel ultimately and Karl Marx is from Hegel. So and again, you can see these guys are well, OK.
1: Uh, explain to me, though, I'm, uh, if it means one's moral obligations to the community. That's yeah. not bad. As
2: a you word. Know, no, of course. So, so, so if <laughs> of it's course. coming from
1: But if it's coming from Hegel and Marx, how do they turn it into something bad? Or what do they mean by it? Or you know, well, what, do we, what do we need to understand yeah.
2: here? Well, and further, so I'm right now. I'm just on sitlakite, and then we have to put that into a larger context of Marx saw all all of history, and we're going to get into in in coming days history as a tool of analysis. But Karl Marx saw all of history as class warfare. That's how he, he saw everything, and it, and again. One of the part of that view is not wrong. It's just it's not exactly right. Like you, you remember talking about Edison and Tesla and Einstein. It wasn't that Einstein was not he he wasn't correct. It's not like he was totally wrong. Right. When you we, when you read these guys, that, you know, that I would say are just enemies of everything. I believe they're not totally wrong. But they're not correct. And it's critical to know why they're not correct because they're gonna sell their program 100% and they're not 100% right. So here we go. Sitlikite refers to the moral obligations I have to an ongoing community of which I am part. These obligations are based on established norms and uses. And that's why the etymological root in sitting is important for hegel's use the crucial characteristic of sitlikite is that it enjoins us to bring about what already is this is a paradoxical way of putting it but in fact the common life which is the basis of my sitlik obligation is already there in existence it's in virtue of its being an ongoing affair that I have these obligations and my fulfillment to these obligations is what sustains it and keeps it in being. Hence, Sitlikite, there is no gap between what ought to be and what is, between soul and, and sign. So for instance, to apply that, cause that's, you know, those are philosophical statements but let's apply it to our cake example, right? The gay couple that wants the local baker to bake their cake, and will not tolerate him saying, you know, no, but here's the phone number to the guy down the street that'll do it for you, right? They they cannot talk. That would not be sitlikite. That that cake baker is not fitting into the culture that they want to. to establish and fortify. So, so that, for it, we're back to our mimesis point. It's, it's the same thing. We're, we're just pointing out the different terms that philosophers use to describe these issues. Okay. So they they don't want, uh, as we've said, they, they don't want, take the term tolerance. They don't want tolerance. They're not going to tolerate you. They are not going to tolerate your not tolerating them. There's a, when you see what, what the rebellion and uh,
1: the definition of tolerance, I mean, the cake baker is tolerating them.
2: He he is. I mean, to an extreme, here's a number of another guy that, right. He's serving them. He morally feels it's wrong to do what they're asking him, but he's not putting up a fight about it. He's just backing away from it. Right. Graciously. Actually, they will not tolerate that. The, the people that preach tolerance are the most intolerant people I've ever seen. Right. So sitlikite essentially on a street level is how you fit in. And, and they're very big on you fitting in to what they're saying. And it's another form of saying, get in line, (laughs) right?
0: Right. You,
2: you get, get in line with our definition of sexuality there's not male, female. There's whatever you want, and you better get in line with that. So, citlicite is is how you fit in. I got. So, you. I, I <laughs> thought that was an important one too, and and you could apply that to to any culture, right? How how do you, how would you quote fit in in Israel, right under under the Book of Deuteronomy? You just... Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. That book defines how to do that. That's how you fit in, right? Right. So,
1: so, yeah. I'll wrap up chapter one. Um, the ideas of authentic, authenticity, identity. What other key words would you? Well, you think
2: sit, of? sit like I, it's a bit a big yeah, term there in there. Yeah. Mimes, mimetic or poietic. Those those are important terms in there. Um, OK, that's about it. That's good.
1: Well, let's finish um, the recording here and wrap up chapter one and start a second recording. Great. Start chapter two. OK,
2: great. So, Thanks. Well, okay. OK, Bye. bye.
0: Therefore I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect.